Well, Tim launched us into a really important conversation this morning, a, r- a really critical conversation about whether or not pastors should be paid, right? This is really important. Uh, I'm excited to, to launch in here. Um, maybe even as some of you were hearing this read, you were a little nervous about where this is headed. Um, you know, the only thing more uncomfortable than someone wanting to talk to you about Jesus is somebody wanting to be paid so they can talk to you about Jesus, right? I'm really glad you all laughed at that because that was like my only joke this morning. It was going to be really awkward if you didn't laugh. But it, it, that doesn't stop some people, right? As a pastor, as someone who is part of a, a church, a paid staff person at a church, I ran into a, an article recently that I found uh, pretty interesting. A, a pastor recently asked his, converse, his congregation to uh, help he and his wife raise funds to buy a private jet, um, or I guess better to replace his current private jet. Uh, and this probably isn't as shocking as it, as it should be, right? But it's definitely newsworthy. He's not asking just for any jet. He's asking uh, for a Gulfstream G650, which I say that like, like I know that that's an important thing. Uh, but uh, it is. See, I was going to say, I know there's someone here who knows about jets. Uh, I don't know anything about private jets, uh, as shocking as that might be, uh, but I've been told that it is like the Rolls-Royce of private jets, which I don't know anything about Rolls-Royces either, but I, I understand enough to know that the analogy, you know, this is the top of the line. This is the best of the best private jets, and this private aircraft can be yours or ours, could be ours, for a cool $65 million, right? That's a steal. Uh, is what, what I understand. Uh, and if you're wondering why a jet is necessary for pastoral ministry, you're not alone. Uh, CNN picked up the story and, and uncovered this reason. This is the reason given. To continue reaching a lost and dying world for the Lord Jesus Christ. According to this pastor, this jet is needed to spread the gospel around the world. And for many of you, that may not, that may sit a little uneasy. And uh, I'm right there, I'm right there with you. Now, I realize I'm on a slippery slope, a slippery ground here, because I, I don't want to disparage anyone. Uh, I, I am an extremely wealthy person by all global measures. Um, we are extremely wealthy people by all global measures. And really, I, I'm not so different from this pastor. I've got my own issues. I routinely make money an idol. I make things, I make idols out of things. You know, if there's any sin in this pastor's heart, which I don't know that there is or isn't, but if there is, those same desires reside in my heart. I I am not so different from this pastor. I'm in danger of using ministry for my own gain, financial or otherwise. It's easy to make ministry about me. The problem isn't simply an abuse of power or greed or what you or me or the world thinks about pastors. It really is what they end up thinking about Jesus, about his church, and about the news that we have to share, this news that we have to tell. When pastors make ministry about them, they, dis- they distort this message, plain and simple. They get in the way of the gospel, and that's what's at stake. At least I hope that's what's at stake. It's, and the stakes are high. Paul's concern in this text is the same, the progress of the gospel, the purity of the message, the purity of the good news that we have to share. Paul's main point in this text is this, nothing is more valuable than the gospel. Nothing is more valuable than the gospel. 
not your rights, not your freedom, not material things. Nothing is more valuable than this news that changed his life, and for many of us here, is changing ours, too. And maybe you're not sold on this. Maybe you're skeptical of the faith because of selfish pastors and private jets and that sort of thing. And I can't blame you, honestly. Uh, that's, that's why this story, in a lot of ways, is, is sad to me. Um, it's not shocking, but it is sad. But that's not the way the scriptures speak to us. We, you know, you might actually be refreshed this morning. If you're a skeptic of the faith, you might be refreshed by what the Bible has to say about what we should be willing to give up for the gospel. It's all shaped by this good news. The way we're called to live is shaped by this good news about what's been done for us. The, mes- the message, really, of Easter Sunday, right? That's, what, that's why we sing. Think back to last week. Push away the Easter eggs and the bunnies and the nice clothes, as, as great as all of those things are. When we get down to the heart of the weekend, if you're a Christian, your heart breaks on Good Friday and it sings on Sunday morning. Why? Because te- death is a terrible enemy. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's been defeated, right? Death has lost its sting. So now now we have an unshakable hope that no fear, no pain, no suffering, nothing can take away. We have new life, new life that begins now and lasts into eternity. And the historical fact that Jesus died and rose again is the best news in the world. Nothing nothing is more, more valuable than that message. That's why we get so excited on Easter morning. At least that's why my heart is filled with joy on Easter. There's nothing more valuable than this good news. So it was, it was good to, to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians for Easter, uh, really to, to focus on what's core to our faith. But let's get reoriented in this book, where we are right now. We're back in the middle of a section that starts in chapter 8 and extends through 11.1. So this chapter 8, the meat sacrifice to idols section, and goes all the way to 11.1 where Paul says, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. If you had to give a theme for this whole section, 8.1 to 11.1, it would be how Christians use their rights and their freedom. So really, it's about Christian freedom. Because of Jesus, we are free in many ways. But Paul says there are better things than freedom. He says, meat is meat, idols are worthless. But if eating meat hinders the work of the gospel, that freedom allows you to eat meat and sacrifice to idols. But if that eating hinders the work of the gospel, it's better not to eat it. That's what he says. It's a pretty simple message. Love limits our freedom as Christians. And we're right back in the middle of that conversation. So here in chapter 9, Paul gives his, really his autobiography of how the gospel has changed the way that he lives, the way that he does life and ministry, how this good news affords him a different way of life. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul caps off the entire argument. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And if you need an example, Paul says, look at me. Do what I do. Follow my lead. See how I use my freedom. So for us this morning, there are really three ways that Paul's example should hit us. First, we love our rights, and yet we're called to sacrifice. We love our rights, and yet we're called to sacrifice. Second, we love our freedom, and yet we're called to serve. And third, we love momentary gain. We love things now, and yet we're called to a lasting Reward. So that's where we're going this morning. So first, uh, we love our rights, and yet we're called to sacrifice. Look at verse 1 with me, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord, or Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship? 
in the Lord. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul, Paul launches into this defense of his rights as, as an apostle. And he lists a couple things right off the bat. Basically, look, I've seen Jesus, which is a, which is a criterion for being an apostle then. I've seen Jesus. Look, you guys are changed. Your lives have changed. So he launches into this, this uh, defense, and it's actually kind of intense. I mean, when you, it's 16 rhetorical questions packed into 14 verses, which rhetorically speaking, is a, I mean, it's building, it's a passionate, a real, a defense of his rights as a gospel. And he spends the next 14 verses answering the question, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And he says, yes and yes to both of those, though his conclusion is actually a little bit surprising. So let's step, let's step back into their world for a moment. So back, back, back then, it was a, really a big deal to travel as a teacher, to travel itinerantly uh, as a teacher or philosopher, and the Greeks loved their philosophers and teachers. The more gifted they were in their rhetoric, uh, the more important their message that they had to give, the more they got paid. Uh, that's just, and, you know, even this far removed from the first century, that makes pretty good sense to my, to my mind. And Paul, an itinerant preacher himself, he, he could have charged for his work in Corinth. He could, he really was due uh, compensation for his gospel ministry in Corinth. But apparently some have questioned, some have questioned this right. Uh, so he sets out to make a case for his ministry as an apostle. So he appeals to the rights of others. He, you know, he points to the other apostles and says, look, they have rights. They have rights to food and drink and to marry. He points to soldiers. They get paid. Farmers get to eat and drink part of their, their produce. And even oxen get to eat when they're working. If animals get to eat, shouldn't Paul, right? That's basically the point of the argument. And then he gets, he gets to, to verse 14. Everybody gets paid for their work, and then he gets to verse 14. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that, that's the ace of spades right there, right? Jesus said so. Uh, the Lord commanded it. That settles, that settles the argument for Paul. You know, he, as an apostle, could say to the church, Show me the money, right? Pay, like, pay up. It's, I, can, I am due this pay. But, but that's not Paul's conclusion. It's not where he ends up, even after this passionate building defense of his rights. In verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul was convinced that because of the cultural expectations for traveling teachers and the way that actually those who paid could kind of control what they said. And, and because the dis, of the disunity in this church, right? Remember, they're already arguing back and forth about, well, I follow Paul and I follow Paulus. There's already this division that's been created because of these gifted leaders. Because of all that, Paul's convinced a paycheck might become an obstacle to the gospel spread. So he's not saying church leaders shouldn't be supported. He makes that point really crystal clear. In fact, elsewhere, Paul thanks the Philippian church for their generous support. And later on, I mean, in 2 Corinthians, when this church is a little healthier, a little farther down the road, he writes back asking them to provide support for the church in Jerusalem. So Paul's not against financial support for gospel ministry. Praise the Lord. Uh, the, point, the point is not the value of the money and his right to receive it. The point 
is the value of the gospel and the sacrifice it takes to proclaim it. The point's not the value of the money. That's, that would be missing the mark. This isn't really, you know, I hope you got the joke. This isn't really a, a sermon about whether or not pastors should be paid. It's what, what are we willing to do for the sake of the gospel? If Paul's paycheck or a pastor's fundraising campaign hinders the spread of the gospel, it has to go. There's nothing more valuable than the gospel. So let's, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. You all help put food on my table, uh, clothes on my back, and a, and a roof over my head. And you may not write my paycheck, I understand that, but you do provide the resources that allow me to do right now what I have a sense that I've been called to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel and equip the saints to do the same. And my growing family and I are extremely grateful for that. And I, I don't say thank you enough for your generous support. Christ community, we, we thank you for your generous support. But if that support were to hinder the work of the gospel proclaimed, I would have to give that up, get a different job, and minister on the side. And, and I hope that I would. This church take, takes really good care of me and my family, but the money isn't the point. It's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. And that, that motivation is too small. Spreading this good news is the point. And we Christians, not just pastors, but Christians all alike, ought to be willing to give up anything for the sake of the gospel. And that sounds, uh, that sounds really strong, but listen to what Paul's saying. He says, if, if I can give up being paid for the sake of the gospel, you can give up eating meat or fill in the blank, right? We love our rights, yet we are called to sacrifice. That doesn't mean we forsake everything. It doesn't mean we're, we forsake all of our rights, but we should be willing to. And that's, that's a bold claim. I mean, even as I was writing that, and even as I say it now, it sounds a little heavy-handed. We should be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. But Paul's language is really strong. There's nothing he won't endure, nothing he won't give up. His very life, he puts on the line for the advancement of this good news, this message that he's been entrusted with. And so if you're a Christian, don't ask the natural question. This is the natural question. Uh, what, am I getting, what am I gaining by being a Christian? What do I gain by being a Christian? Ask the unnatural one instead. What am I giving up so that others can be too? What am I sacrificing so that others can hear this good news that we have to share? See, Jesus has rescued us from sin and death and hell, and that ought to compel us like nothing else to want to see others rescued. So what would you do to see people meet Jesus? What would you give up? Now, many of you already give so sacrificially. Not just financially, though, this is a very generous church. But also, you're generous with your time and with your comfort, other resources. You give of yourselves to see the gospel reach Shawnee and beyond. That's why many of you are here at 6 o'clock this morning to help make a gym feel like a welcoming place, right? That's why you serve with our kids and lead community groups and serve coffee and greet at the door. That's why many of you risk the awkwardness of telling your neighbor that you're a Christian and asking them to come check out who Jesus is. Every one of those things costs time, money, comfort. And you don't have to do it, but you do. 
So in the same vein, as I say thank you for your generous financial support, thank you for being a church that gives sacrificially of other, in other ways. Now sometimes, uh, this may come as a surprise, but sometimes we struggle with knowing how much to give. You know, I've heard the question, am I giving enough of my time or of my money or my resources, which I know might sound like I'm just baiting that question, but I have heard that question. And, you know, because we want to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And I think C.S. Lewis is really helpful on this point in Mere Christianity. And he, he writes this. He says, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I love that language, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And I, I can't think of a better definition of sacrifice than that. So are your sacrifices hampering you? Do they, do they pinch? We love our rights, but we are called to be pinched for the sake of the gospel. And that was, that's been a challenging point for me this week. Even as someone who this is what I feel like I've been called to do, maybe especially as someone that feels like this is what I've been called to do. Am I, am I willing to give up, I mean, all the way to my life, am I willing to lay my life on the line for the sake of this good news and follow Paul's example? Because nothing is more valuable than the gospel. So that's the first thing Paul's example should prompt us to ask ourselves and then to follow his lead. Next we see that we love our freedom and yet we're called to serve. We love our freedom and yet we're called to... To serve. So look at verse 19, and I'm going to read this whole section, 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So remember where Paul started in this text. He's asked the question, am I not free? And he, and he claims here, right, yes, indeed, I am free. I'm free from all. And here's what he means. You know, acceptance of payment in that time as a, as a teacher would have likely placed some limits on the shape of, of his ministry. Uh, it, it, he would, in a sense, be bound to the Corinthian church. Um, so instead, he's financially independent. He's free. Nobody's paying him. Nobody, there's no strings attached, I guess, to the, to the shape of his ministry. But freedom for Paul is not the end game, right? So, so often, at least for me, uh, I, use, I see my freedom as an ultimate good, as an ultimate right uh, to be used for myself. I like to see freedom as something for my own benefit, but Paul uses his freedom, he sees it as something for others. He uses his freedom to become a servant, to become a slave, which, which is that paradox it blew my mind as I studied this week, right? Paul says, I'm free from all, and yet I've chained myself to others for their good, for what's best for them, for their salvation, and this is the Christian life in a nutshell, right? I mean, Paul follows in the footsteps of his master, Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He came. He, came, he became a man to serve all, to save all. And Paul gives some examples of how he does this. He says, to those who are Jewish and under the law of Moses, I 
I know how to blend in. I can be like them. So Paul could yield his, he could yield to Jewish commitments for the sake of gaining a gospel foothold uh, for, with Jews. He could be kosher if the gospel demanded him to be kosher. And to the Greeks and Romans who have nothing to do with Jewish law, he knows how to blend in. He can be like them too for the sake of the gospel. That's what he means to those outside the law. He's not breaking God's moral laws. That's what he means by this unique phrase, under the law of Christ. He's still called to be a Christian. He's not becoming an adulterer to reach adulterers, right? But he's like them in ways that serve them. So in the same way as Christians, we have been set free for similar reasons, right? To serve the good of others. But the social aspects of of this kind of gospel ministry uh, can be challenging. This is easier said than done. So let's ask this question. How do we, like Paul, become all things to all people with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our classmates? How do we use our freedom to serve others? And uh, Tim Keller in New York, he's helpful at this point. He argues that in order to love people well, in any culture, we need to be both reassuringly similar to them and startlingly different from those around us, from the world, from our neighbors, from our coworkers. We should be both like and unlike our neighbors. So we should be reassuringly similar. Think about Kansas City, or even Shawnee in, in particular, or wherever you uh, make your home. Think about that area. For the most part, we speak the same language, for the most part. We dress in similar clothes. We enjoy the same hobbies. We cheer for the same sports teams, for the most part. Uh, the Royals, thankfully, have united us, I think. Um, we love the same restaurants. We hate the same traffic. We share many of the same fears about the present and hopes and ambitions for the future. And you get the idea, right? In so many ways, we are like those around us. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. If, you're, if we're too different from the world, the gospel will likely fall on deaf or apathetic ears. Our non-Christian neighbors should be able to see, come into a church or come into your home and see what it would be like for them to become a Christian. They should be able to envision that. And many struggle with this because they often see a life they don't want. Uh, they see, I don't know, cheesy Christian t-shirts or you know, a certain kind of music or a certain way that they have to vote or something like that. They see these things and say, I don't want, I don't want that life. But they need to see that following Jesus is possible because they see people like them doing it. There should be some common ground with the world. But at the same time, we should be startlingly different than the world. And I don't want you to miss that either. I'm not saying we need to be just like the world around us. We're called to love our enemies and refuse to gossip. We're called to radical generosity. We're called to honest, honest hospitality. We have the same fears, but our fears can't be controlled. They can't control us. We're called to forgive and to love and respect everyone. The gospel should make us radically different from the world. It should change the way we suffer in the midst of adversity. It should change the way we hope in in the face of uncertainty. So here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. We should be the same and we should be different. And we must engage. We must engage those around us. We build meaningful relationships and with people who are different from us, who have different beliefs and values. 
We use our freedom to love and serve. And we go to them with the good news in a language that makes sense. That's the point. Paul saying, I've become all things to all people, to save some. Of course, this isn't, this isn't what we always prefer, or this is not what we want naturally necessarily want to do. We might not like hanging out at the water cooler uh, work, but we do it anyway to connect with people. We might not enjoy volunteering uh, you know, at your kids' school events, but you do it anyway to serve and to love your neighbor. You might not like everything in our church services, right? That's, there's a pretty good chance that's true. Uh, but who, who cares what we like, right? As long as the gospel is being proclaimed and people are meeting Jesus. So we follow Paul's example as he, he imitates Jesus, right? This is what Jesus did. He became a man to save the lost. He became all things to all people for their salvation. So are we, are we using our freedom to make this good news plain to the world? So, or are you so different from your neighbor that you have no common ground? You're so different from your neighbor that you have no common ground. Or are you so similar to the world? And this is, this is my struggle, so similar to the world that others don't even know you have anything different or better to offer. We should all use our Christian freedom to become all things to all people. And this is one reason we plant churches. This is one reason Christ's community is so committed to planting churches, because not all of Kansas City is the same, right? For the sake of Shawnee, we came to Shawnee to win Shawneeans. Uh, we, and we exist in Leewood, and we exist in Olathe and downtown and Brookside for the same reason. We're not all the same, but the gospel, the gospel is. And it's worth becoming like all people to see them come to Jesus. And for Paul, this gospel is also the reward that motivates his entire ministry. So look at verse 18. This is where we're going to finish up. He says, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So, so Paul's compen- that reward, pay, really, his compensation for his work was the gospel itself and the chance to preach it freely. This news of free grace for Paul, the, the end game. Hey, I get, to, I get to preach this for free. Which brings us to our final point this morning. We love momentary gain, and yet, like Paul, we're called to a lasting reward. We're called to a lasting reward. And it may, it may come as a surprise to some of you that my training before seminary was, uh, was in business, was in business management and human resource management uh, in particular. And I worked in the banking world for a couple years uh, after, after my, or before my theological training. And I am really increasingly thankful for that time, that time in the banking world before seminary. And one lesson that was drilled into all of us young business leaders, I guess, in school was it had to do with motivation. Um, what does and doesn't motivate people to do their best and to do it for the long haul. And I'll never forget the discussion about money as a motivator, uh, namely that it's actually not a, it's not a very good one, at least not a great one. Uh, and my, my professor argued that, sure, money is good at attracting good people and retaining them, uh, and it's important that compensation isn't a constant area of concern. I mean, you shouldn't have to always think about money. And lack of money can be a serious demotivator, unless you're Paul, I guess. Uh, but... But money's not great at influencing behavior or ensuring mission-critical work or productivity. 
or even making people happy. I mean, we, in fact, it can do the opposite. Um, it can quickly turn people inward. It can quickly make us focus on our own selves, on our own gain. And that's, that is a miserable life. A better motivator is work worth doing. Work that is enjoyable and challenging. Work with a connection to something bigger and more lasting than the material benefits uh, than, than we can get in the here and now. See, mon money isn't enough. Things aren't enough. We were made for more. And what we need is something closer to what Paul says is enough in this passage. And look at verse 23. It's really the thesis statement of this entire passage. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul isn't laboring for a momentary gain, uh, that a, the momentary gain that a paycheck brings, though he has the right to it. Paul works as a servant and a steward, and his only pay is, is actually sharing in the gospel itself. Paul works to see this gospel do powerful things in the lives of people, people who were once far from him, like himself. That was him. He was the chief opponent of the gospel. And meeting Jesus changed everything about his life. So he puts that life, he puts his life on the line to see people meet Jesus. And his motivation isn't the things that he receives now, but a lasting reward, life with Christ. That's, that's all any of us needs. The religious, the irreligious, the moral, the immoral, the near, the far, we all need this lasting reward. But we can't expect all these people, the, the irreligious and the immoral or the moral and the religious, we can't accept, expect them all to just walk through these doors uh, and come into this gym looking for this lasting reward, looking for life with Christ, right? That can't be our only strategy for introducing people to Jesus, for proclaiming this good news. Paul wasn't content with a come and see a come and see approach only. And yes, we should be inviting people to this space. I mean, I, many of you are faithful to do that, and that's great. But like Paul, the gospel should motivate us to go and tell, to take this good news into our relationships, into the people that we, that we know outside of these walls. Many will meet Jesus somewhere other than this gym, right? Becoming all things to all people means taking this good news beyond these walls. And so is this our aim? Does the gospel motivate us like this? Can you say, can I, can I say, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I sacrifice my rights. I give up my freedom so that others can meet Jesus. Is this our motivation? I love my work as a pastor. Um, in, my, in my young, my relatively limited time doing this. I've loved getting to do the work of proclaiming the good news and helping others do the same. It's a wonderful calling that I, I wouldn't necessarily have chosen for myself uh, because it's not all sunshine and roses, right? Sometimes the early alarm on Sunday morning or Monday morning uh, is not my favorite sound in the world. And many of you know that feeling, right? Now, do you want to know what gets me out of bed? It's not the paycheck, right? Believe me, it's not the paycheck. Um, it's getting to do this work with God and getting to do God's work with you 
I get to partner with you, this church, in God's mission in this city. And this is what you're doing when you lead community group or hang out with our students or corral our two-year-olds or greet people at the door. This is what you're doing. You're engaging in God's work in this city. It's the relationships you build at school, at work, in your neighborhood. And hopefully it's, it's when you share actually verbally share this good news with others. That's the work that we're doing together. That's getting to see people come to faith is what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's why we're here. It's why we're doing this this morning. Jesus died. He rose. He lives. And we get to participate with him in this work. This is the, va- the most valuable news in the world, that Jesus died and is raised and lives so that we can have new life. So Jesus, Jesus is worth any sacrifice, any amount of service, and he is our reward. Yeah, like the world around us, we love our rights, we love our freedom, we love momentary pleasures, but the gospel makes us different. The gospel makes us different in ways that our world so desperately needs. Let's pray.